The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. We have a bright future, don't we? Danny, thank you for leading us this morning. Caitlin, Justin, John, thank you for leading us in classic hymns and newer songs that point us to the delights of the gospel. Our scripture text this morning, which I have the honor of reading, is John 13, verses 12 to 17. Thank you, PJ, for picking that out from your study Bible. That was very encouraging and uh, good to remember. Each Sunday morning when we wake up and think, well, can we get to church? I think of those who arise so early to set up this room. Thank you, thank you, thank you for those of you that arrive in the darkness and the cold and the snow and the sleet and the locusts and everything else that must be like in the mornings. Did you read my email? I hope that that note was an encouragement to you and that you take to heart the charge that belongs to all of us, not just a few. From John 13, verse 12 begins, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father, please bless and anoint our pastor as we meditate on your precepts, fix our eyes on your ways, and delight in your statutes. For our joy in you and your reputation, I ask this in your son's name. Amen. One of my favorite movies of all time, writes author Randy Alcorn, is the 1981 Chariots of Fire. It's the only reason many people are familiar with Eric Liddell, the flying Scotsman, who shocked the world by refusing to run the 100 meters in the 1924 Paris Olympics, a race he was favored to win. 
He withdrew because the qualifying meet was on a Sunday, and he believed God didn't want him to run on the Lord's day. Liddell then went on to win a gold medal and break a world record in the 400 meters, not his strongest event. I still remember sitting with Nancy in a large Portland theater in 1981, smiling and crying through various parts of that unforgettable movie. It ends with these brief words about Eric's life after the Olympics. Eric Liddell, missionary, died in occupied China at the end of World War II. All of Scotland mourned. After the Olympics and his graduation, Eric returned as a missionary to China where he had been born to missionary parents in 1902. When the Japanese occupation made life dangerous, he sent his pregnant wife Florence and their two daughters to Canada. Japanese invaders placed him in a squalid prison camp without running water or working bathrooms. There, separated from his family, Eric lived several years before dying at age 43. Upon learning of Eric's death, it wasn't just Scotland that mourned. All over the world, people who had been inspired by him in the Olympics and in the Christian life joined the mourning. On the surface, it all seems so tragic. Why did God withhold from this great man of faith a long life, years of fruitful service, the companionship of his wife, and the joy of raising those beloved children? It makes no sense. And yet, there is another way to look at the Eric Liddell story. Nancy and I discovered this firsthand when we spent an unforgettable day in England with Phil and Margaret Holder in May of 1988. Margaret was born in China to missionary parents with China Inland Mission. In 1939, when Japan took control of eastern China, 13-year-old Margaret was imprisoned by the Japanese in a camp where many foreigners in Beijing were sent to. There she remained separated from her parents for six years. Margaret told us stories about a godly man she called Uncle Eric. She said he tutored her and was deeply loved by all the children in the camp. She looked at us and asked, do you know who I'm talking about? Uncle Eric's name was Eric Liddell. I recall like it was yesterday how stunned we were because Chariots of Fire was such a favorite movie. And we'd watched it several times in the seven years since it was released. Here we were learning inside information about one of our heroes. Margaret shared with us a story that illustrated this man's Christ-like character. In the camp, the children played basketball, rounders, and hockey, and Eric Liddell was their referee. Not surprisingly, he refused to referee on Sundays. But in his absence, the children fought. Liddell struggled over this. He believed he shouldn't stop the children from playing because they needed the diversion. Finally, Liddell decided to referee on Sundays. This made a deep impression on Margaret. She saw that the athlete, world famous for sacrificing success for principle, was not a legalist. When it came to his own glory... 
Liddell would surrender it all rather than run on Sunday. But when it came to the good of children in a prison camp, he would referee on Sunday. Liddell would sacrifice a gold medal for himself in the name of truth, but would bend over backwards for others in the name of grace. In his washing of their feet, Jesus asked, Do you understand what I have done to you? It seems, hearing that story of Eric Liddell, that he understood. He understood and followed Christ's example of a humble, loving service that put the needs of others before himself. Jesus acknowledges in our text that he is, he is our Lord and teacher. And last week, the theological lesson that we focused on, Jesus, unless Jesus wash your feet, we have no share. We have no inheritance with him. Salvation requires that we be cleansed by the atoning blood of Jesus. And this foot washing demonstrated the necessity of it, that he is the only one who can cleanse us from our sins. And here, another lesson Jesus teaches us is that we are to follow his example, there, uh, that we are to be humble and have a loving service to one another. In verse 15, he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So what does this tell us? It tells us that our lifestyle, that when people are with us and around us and see us, it ought to resemble Jesus. It ought to remind people of him. And last week, the benediction I gave came from Philippians 2, which is a beautiful passage that describes the humility of Christ. It shows, really from this cosmic perspective, describing the extent of his humility and coming from his heavenly throne, becoming a man, becoming a servant, and dying for us on the cross. And I love the encouragement that Paul gives as he instructs us to have the mind Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind, have this attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If his atoning work on the cross has been applied to you, if Jesus has cleansed you, if forgiveness is yours, then something else is yours. The mind, the attitude of Christ is ours. It's been given to us. It's been worked into our lives through God's Spirit. Salvation is not just a a change of position. Salvation is not just a change of position to where God sees you as righteous, as his child. It's also a change of attitude. 
It's transformational. It's a renewal of our minds. Have this mind, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. So as followers of Christ, we should know, we should know what he expects of us. We need to know that it's not just, you know, we, we hear stories like Eric Liddell and we need to know it's not just for the super-Christians to have the mind of Christ. It's not just for the missionaries, the Olympic heroes. Jesus teaches us and expects and works this kind of attitude into all of his believers, all those who believe in him, all of his children. If you're a Christian, then you are in Christ. You are not only robed in the righteousness of Christ, but his righteous mind is being worked into your life. The Spirit of God indwells you. He is conforming you into the very image of Christ. This is the Romans 8.28 kind of work that he is up to, sovereignly ordaining every circumstance as an opportunity, as something that is being used to conform you, to give you the mind of Christ, to work this image of Christ into your life. So in that same chapter of Philippians, Paul tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, so yes, God has given us the mind of Christ and working this into our lives, but it's not a passive thing, right? This says, Work out your own salvation. Here's the expectation. Here's, here's, I have the Spirit of God. Here's His purpose in all things. Here's what he's, he's doing and working. I need to believe that to be true and work out this salvation. It's a fearful and trembling. It's awesome. So work out. Be active in your Christian life. Work this out. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're, we're simply just given a ticket that will one day get us to heaven. And until then, we're free to ignore our teacher, our Lord, who tells us in this text, follow this example. This is not Christianity, this view of, of just anticipating heaven someday. If you think that your faith, think of your faith in this way, and that you can ignore Jesus, basically, you need to re-examine your faith and see if you're really in the faith. The early disciples, remember, think of them. The early disciples, they were changed. They were transformed. Peter denying Jesus to a, a girl becomes this bold witness. They were cowards, and then they became fearless proclaimers of Christ, willing, even even counting it a privilege, to die in his name for this truth. This is your faith. This Eric Liddell kind of loving sacrifice is what we are a part of. This transformed life and attitude is being worked into your life to work into your circumstances and the reason that you the reason that you can do this 
is because, the rest of the verse, God is the one. God is the one who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is for God's good pleasure which will lead to your blessing, your happiness in serving. And so that's my my focus this morning really is recognizing the example of Christ, the command of Christ to do as He has done. And so we need to we need to appreciate that and obey that. Jesus is our master, so we need to do this. But also, what's our motive in doing so? How do we do so in faith? And Jesus says those who do what what he commands will be blessed. And so our motive really is, do you want to be happy? (laughs) Jesus promises us blessing by following his example. And so that ultimately is my point this morning. But let's consider, I want to think about the attitude of Jesus that we see as he washed his disciples' feet. And this is the attitude that we likewise ought to have. First, Jesus was aware of the highest priorities. In verse 1, we read that he knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. We need to be aware of our highest priorities. We need, to, we need to keep the main thing the main thing, right? There are so many issues of our day, so many things on our minds, so many important things. But let's keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus knew what was coming. And his actions in the moment, his example, it pointed to the ultimate message of the cross. He washed their dirty, unworthy, even betraying feet. And this makes us think of and look to the greater sacrifice of the cross. We need to be aware of of our own areas of influence. And we need to speak the truth. And we need to be aware of the social issues of our day. And we need to be a voice that shines light and speaks truth to our culture for the sake of God's honor. And in doing so, primarily, we need to remember that it honors God for us to be viewed as those who look like Jesus, who resemble Jesus. We need the attitude. We need the mind of Christ. And it's so tempting, isn't it, to be sarcastic at the lunacy going on in our day and the decisions that are being made, which reminds me all the more that this speaks to the spiritual blindness that's going on, the the spiritual battle that is actually happening and how much more we need to be praying it reminds think of it this way it reminds me of being a, a parent and when your children get older you tend to realize all the more that it's not simply their behavior that you're after right you're after their hearts when they're little it's believe it or actually you I don't know you with little ones you might you might 
um, choke at me saying this, but when they're little, it's actually easy to control them. (laughs) When they get to be teens, you realize, huh, I can't, I can't do, it doesn't work anymore. And what I realized, Jen and I realized, oh, prayer is so important because it's their hearts. If their hearts are right, then their behavior, their right behavior will follow. Oh, we should have been praying that much more. And it helped us realize how much we needed to pray. So, there's a spiritual concern. Prayer is critical because God is the, he's the only one who can sovereignly change the human heart. Yes, there are great social concerns. And yet, we need to be aware of a deeper concern, a heart issue that led to such foolishness. And so we can't neglect the priority of the cross, the importance of loving Like, don't underestimate a humble, seemingly small service and how powerful that is in a person's life. The importance of loving like Jesus loved and praying that people, that the scales of blindness will be removed and they'll see him for who he is and that they'll they'll have his wisdom. So if we don't resemble the love and humility of Jesus, if the gospel, which is, has the power to transform human hearts, if it is not primary, then we're not following Jesus' teaching. We're not following his example. Jesus was facing something infinitely larger than anything we've ever faced in the crucifixion, in the bearing the wrath of God. And he prioritized in this moment humility and loving service, culminating with the heart-transforming work of the cross. We don't know how many days that we have left or how many days other people have. We don't know when the Lord is coming again, if it's in our lifetime or if it's a thousand years from now. So we need to make the main thing the main thing. Do they know Jesus? Have they heard the good news? Do they have the mind of Christ? And if they do, what will be the result in our world? What will be the result in our society? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Another attitude of Jesus was a love for the unworthy, like his disciples, like us, like those who don't fit in. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes, the most undesirable people of his time and his answer to the criticism was those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Our natural tendency is to hang out with people who are like us. And this is not what the church should look like. The church, the church is not a club. It's not a place where we prefer people who are just like us 
same age, same season of life, same financial status. No, this is, that's a worldly way of thinking. We are, as Pastor Jim reminded us, we are a family. We are brothers and sisters who are one in Christ, told by Jesus to do as he has done to us. It's a community. That's what we're after. Not a club. We're after a community. And over the years, and in his recent email, Pastor Dale has emphasized having intentional efforts to prefer the needs of others and befriend and welcome people who are new. It's, it seems, again, seems like a small thing. It's hard for some of us. seems like a small thing, but it's massive. It has an impact. It creates a sense of community, which is really what the church is, the body of Christ. This is why we love disability ministry. People who feel on the outside or it's difficult um, to come, that they feel just like a brother and sister, people that we want to hang out with. We need to be together. We need to be a part of each other's lives, not preferring people who are just like us. And this is why home groups should be a mix, really. And it's hard, I know. But home groups, ideally it would be wonderful if home groups are a mix of singles and marrieds, young and old, young people wanting the wisdom of, of older people. It's why our worship is a mix of hymns, and new songs, because we're made up of different people. We ought to be. We don't all have the same tastes, but like a family, we should humble ourselves and prefer others and be kind and patient with one another. This is what we're after. We have, we have a ways to go, but this is the direction of Jesus and what he commands of us. We're not a club. We're a family. This is an important identity of Bear Creek Church. It's biblical. It's the attitude, the mind of Christ put into practice. And it's not going to come naturally. And we need the reminders over and over and over again. We need to work out our salvation and be intentional as loving, serving, Humble people who desire a community that put the needs of others before their own. Not grumbling about things not being the way we like it. This is what will glorify Jesus. And this, again, will lead to your happiness. Will lead to your blessing. Philip Yancey said, anyone can form a club. It takes grace shared vision, and hard work to form a community. We need God's grace to work on our attitudes towards those who are different. We need to see the beauty, really, of this kind of community. We need to continually work toward this and pray toward this. Another attitude of Jesus is that he prioritized serving others in the midst of weighty and challenging circumstances. And this is a hard balance for us because if we, you know, if if you have a spouse, if you have children, we shouldn't neglect them as we go and serve 
others. That's a, that's a tough balance. We need, to, we need to be involved in, other, in people's lives, see each other as family, brothers and sisters, and yet we have primary responsibilities of spouse and kids, and we don't want to neglect them, and them have this, this thought of being neglected and hate the church as a result of it. Um, and yet, we can give them a vision for the church and include them in our service and pray for their hearts, then we are not only following the example of Christ, but we're giving an example to them as, as well. And so there's this balance. Just the other day, Jen was reminded me um, of how Pastor Jim would take uh, his son Andrew with him. When Andrew was just a little guy, little Andrew, uh, <laughs> going out mowing people's lawns, or Jen recalling, you know, if, I, if she was um, doing some decorating for an event in the church, Andrew would always seemingly be there, and can I, how can I help? And so Pastor Jim was so good about taking Andrew along on these projects. A great example that our service is not, it's not always an either-or choice. Sometimes it can be a, a teaching moment that shapes our children into, into others-centered Disciples of Christ. Jesus says in verse 17 that if we look to his example of loving, humble service and do them, we will be blessed. It will lead to our happiness. So let happiness, not not guilt, let happiness be your motive. Believe the promise of Jesus and pursue your happiness by following his example. When, we, when we're going through something really weighty, some circumstance that's challenging in our lives, it can have the effect, it can have this paralyzing effect on our lives. It can, it can give us a, a sense of excuse from avoiding service to others. And we're so overwhelmed, we don't have maybe the the emotional energy to even think of others. And yet, what was the example of Christ as he faced the weightiness of the cross? Jesus served because he entrusted, Jesus served because he entrusted his concerns into the hands of his sovereign father. He knew that he can trust his father who is in control of all things with all of his concerns. And sometimes sometimes we're going through something and we're just not able to help out. And that's okay and that's understandable. But sometimes, I bring this up because sometimes when we say no to serving, it may have more to do with our worry. It may have more to do with our anxiety, our being so emotionally overwhelmed that we have no energy to say yes. And with these situations, maybe, it's our, maybe the remedy in it is to likewise entrust our circumstances to the sovereign hand of God. As we look to God and trust Him and our hearts and minds are freed from the paralysis of fear and anxiety, it frees us to wash feet. 
to even face something uh, in the midst of something very difficult, to serve. And in fact, work is a great remedy. (laughs) Serving can be a great remedy to alleviate the, the anxiety that we're going through. So to sum up the attitude of Jesus, the mind of Christ that we should have, we should have an awareness not only of the circumstances around us, but the priority of the gospel. We should love those who are different, seeking true Christian community. And we should entrust our concerns to the sovereign hand of God instead of being paralyzed with anxiety and fear that that keeps us from serving. And in saying that we have the mind of Christ, we should understand that this, this leads to action. We act in faith, not moved by guilt, but by a faith that believes the blessing of Jesus. And so we might ask ourselves, do I want to be happy? Then I should follow the example of Jesus, who tells me, Jesus tells me this will lead to blessing. Like most of life and scripture, we do things. We act based upon what we know to be true. Jesus promises we will be blessed. We will be made happy as we do what he did. So here I want to give a few things uh, for us to keep in mind. A knowledge, again, we act based upon what we know to be true. So let's think about a knowledge that leads to our happy service. First, And foundationally, know that Jesus is Lord. The basis for Jesus telling us to follow his example is that he he is our Lord. He is our master. I know it sounds obvious, but sometimes we've got to come back to the obvious. He is our master, and he tells us what to do. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I am your Lord, then, like me, wash one another's feet. Is Jesus your Lord? Then know that your master has set an example and he tells you to wash feet. And of course, we know that it's not the washing in particular, that he's after because in verse 15 Jesus doesn't tell us to do what he has done but to do as he has done as he has shown us humble loving service so should we likewise do knowing that it's going to lead to a happy community which glorifies Jesus putting ourselves first putting ourselves first is ultimately a trap A trap that leads to momentary happiness, failing us in the end. While putting Jesus at the center of everything, knowing that he is Lord, he is our master to trust and obey. This, this will truly lead to a blessing, to happiness as we trust him. Secondly, know that Jesus made himself a servant, though he is Though he is the king of glory, he humbled himself and he served us, even dying 
And the ascended Lord continues to serve us to this day. Third, know that that Christians, these all sound so obvious, but we need to come back to them. Know that Christians, and it's in the text, Jesus communicates this truth. We're not greater than our master. Christians aren't greater than Christ. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If it wasn't beneath Jesus to serve, then it's never beneath us to serve. So if we place our desires first, then we're acting like we're above Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Similarly, know that if it's proper for Jesus to do this, then it's proper for us as well. If the king stoops to serve, if it's not improper for him, then it's not improper for his subjects. If the king washes dirty feet, then dads can clean dirty diapers. And pastors can stack some chairs. And CEOs of a corporation can be a buddy or a Sunday school teacher. Lastly, know that our being saved by Jesus and served by Jesus, we are now sent by Jesus to serve in humility and love. Skip Ryan writes, there will be a quality of sentness about our lives. Being a missionary doesn't mean that we go on mission trips. It may mean we are sent to the hospital to care for a friend who is lonely. We are sent next door with a pot of soup when someone is sick. We are sent to care for one another as the Lord has cared for us. As the Lord gave up his rights, we have been commissioned, initiated into the fraternity of the water basin, the order of the towel. Jesus said that knowing these things is the key to happiness, but not just knowing. Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed, joyful, happy are you if you do them. Not just knowing, but doing. Sometimes we're, sometimes we're maybe satisfied with just the knowing, but that's not enough. We must act on what we know. And Jesus tells us, that this will not just make us useful in the kingdom, but actually happy in the kingdom. When we look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, we see this, this countercultural promise of blessing, which is happiness. For Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In our world, this kind of thinking makes no sense. Instead, it's the boastful and the proud, it's the go-getters, it's the arrogant and the bold who are seen to be the, the winners, the happy ones. And again, maybe for a time this is true, but it won't last. We want happiness now and forever. The kind of selfless 
sacrifice of Eric Liddell doesn't make sense to the world. All of Scotland mourned. What a waste. What a tragedy that the great Eric Liddell died at such a young age as a prisoner of war. Randy Alcorn went on to write this. While all of Scotland mourned, all in heaven who had cheered Eric on as a servant of Jesus gave him a rich welcome. Through fresh tears that unforgettable day in their living room, Margaret Holder told us it was a cold February day when Uncle Eric died. No one in the world mourned like those in that camp. When five months later the children were rescued by American paratroopers and reunited with their families, many of their stories were about Uncle Eric. What an impact. Liddell's imprisonment broke the hearts of his family, but for years, nearly to the war's end, God used him as a lifeline to hundreds of children, including Margaret Holder. Viewed from that perspective, the apparent tragedy of Liddell's presence in that camp makes more sense, doesn't it? I'm convinced Liddell and his family would tell us, and one day will tell us, that the sufferings of that time are not worthy to be compared with the glory they now know and will forever know, a glory far greater than the suffering which achieved it. In an interview with Liddell's youngest daughter, Maureen, who he never met. She shared this after visiting the granite monument in China dedicated to her father's memory. I felt so close to him, and more than ever, I realized what his life had been for. It all made sense. What happened allowed him to touch so many lives as a consequence. Her sister Patricia agreed. The number of people he influenced, well, things seem to add up, don't they? You only appreciate it when you look at each stage of his life and make the connections between them. I used to ask myself, how would things have turned out if the three of us and our mother had been in the camp with him? Then I understood my father would have spent less time with the other youngsters, which would have deprived them of so much. That didn't seem fair to them. He was needed there. The stories we heard after his death proved that. Do you see the mind of Christ? What an others-centered view. An attitude that's aware of what's most important. And that lovingly put the needs of others first. As Eric followed the example of Christ, it seems, it seems Eric's children did too. Just like opportunities that we might have and bringing them along in service to others. And hopefully they will have that mindset too. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, We praise you for your grace that you would stoop and humbly love 
unlovable rebels like us. That you would give your only son, sending him to a dark and sinful world that would reject him and murder him. That you would do so because you love us. And that your son would come to serve and not be served to willingly die in our place and cleanse us with his own blood. We praise you, Father. We praise you, God, for your glorious grace. And now as our Lord Jesus, you command us to humbly serve one another. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for our lack of faith. For you command, your command is ultimately our blessing. Help us to do as you have done to us, believing that it will not only glorify you, which is, which is our highest purpose in life, but that it will also lead to our own joy, our own happiness. Lord, we love your church. Make us more like Jesus. Give us the mind of Christ so that we might be a family, a community, your body that demonstrates the humble love of Jesus for your glory, for your glory, Lord, and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.